Welcome to a new uh, conversation about software engineering. Actually, today it's not really software engineering, it's uh, privacy or and, um, security in an insecure age. I'm sitting here with Susan Landau, and Susan Landau is um, a cybersecurity expert. She works for the Tufts University and is a visiting um, professor at the University College London. She testified at a conference, um, writes for the Washington Post, Scientific American, is frequently on NPR and BBC. She has been a senior staff privacy analyst at Google and a distinguished engineer at Sun Microsystems. She was inducted into the Cybersecurity Hall of Fame 2015 and is a Guggenheim ACM American Association, Association for the Advancement of Science Fellow. So many, many things. I don't know, you must be 500 years old. Um, achieving 1007. <laughs> I'm really happy to have you here. Um, I was waiting for that interview a long, long time. Now we finally make it. Um, yeah, I just want to start with a simple question. What is privacy? Privacy is many different things to many different people. Some people view it as the right to be let alone. Uh, some people view it as control of the use of one's data. Uh, some people view it as the not publication of data. Uh, some people view it as the right to be forgotten. This is something quite popular uh, in Europe at the moment and, and trying to impose it uh, on the rest of the world. Um, I think of it mostly as the control of use of one's data. Uh, largely I think of it that way because in the modern era it's very hard to prevent the collection and what you really want to do is prevent the bad effects of the collection. But of course that does mean that certain things like harm to one's reputation can happen even if you're controlling use. Mm, okay, yeah, we, we will deep, uh, dig deeper on the, the collection of data uh, soon. Um, what is security? <laughs> security is protecting against the taking of one's data. Uh, so one way to think about the distinction is to think for a moment about a particular company, and it could be Facebook, it could be Google, it could be LinkedIn. Google is a, a particularly useful example because it's an example that everybody knows, and it has extremely good security. Google's business model is that they take the information from users, that users supply, uh, and then they do things with it to improve services for the users. But in order to do that, they have to have trust of the users. And so, beginning probably earlier than 2010, but certainly in 2010, Google really improved its security process. Uh, they know that users won't trust the company with their data if Google's security isn't good. So that's security, protecting attacks of your data from the outside. But on the other hand, uh, Google takes the data and then does various things with, you. It's, uh, with it. It serves you ads. Uh, some people enjoy the ads, some people like the ads a great deal less. Uh, some people try to use Google services without being signed in. It's sometimes a much less good experience. But the point is there's a clear distinction between privacy and security right there. The protection of your data against outside attackers is security, but the, the use of Google by, of the data is, in many people's minds, an attack on their own privacy, even though they've supplied the data to Google. Mm, yeah, I mean, in, in, in Europe, we, we have a, a discussion on a corporate surveillance so that Facebook, Google, um, 
and others. I mean, there, there are many, many business models which rely on collecting data and including, I, I myself, I'm a little bit scared what happens uh, to my data if an attacker um, gets them. So I, you think I can trust uh, Google and Facebook and all those uh, companies that they don't, don't do any harm? So again, it depends on what you mean by trust. Uh, so for one thing, of course, if your data is being held by a third party, then other people may have access to it. For example, law enforcement or national security may have access to it under a court order. And you may choose that, no, I don't want to share my data in that case. I, for example, am much more comfortable using a cloud service that, of course, like most cloud services, stores my data in the cloud encrypted. But the difference with most cloud services is that this particular one does not hold the key. So if I lose the key, if I lose my copy of, or copies of the key, then I have no way of getting my data back. It's, I can look at it, but it's all encrypted. It doesn't do me any good. So uh, when you talk about trust, it really depends on what your threat model is. Uh, for many of us, the threat model um, is we don't really care who has the data as long as it's not criminals. And then a company like Google or Facebook, because they rely on user trust, really go to, to strong lengths to protect the data. For others, maybe it's a human rights worker, maybe it's a journalist, concerned that governments might try to access the data under court orders in their country that the journalist or human rights worker feels are inappropriate, then they would choose not to use those services. Maybe they don't want to leave tracks of whom they've communicated with or tracks of what was actually said. So it, it all depends on what you're protecting against. Mm. So I'm, I'm just wondering, or actually I'm not wondering, but um, why is it important that not everybody or especially governments can or know what we are doing. So, I mean, with, with, with Facebook, Google, all these sensors on the mobile phone, you can, um, you can create perfect profiles of, of a person, which the governments, I, I mean, governments sell that as a good thing because they can protect us from the evil. It depends how you define evil. And I'll go back to the 1950s to 1970s in the United States, which are examples that I know quite well. Um, and I'll describe two different sets of examples. One is in the 1950s and 60s in the United States, uh, we had a very active civil rights movement because, of course, black Americans were being prevented from voting. They were being prevented from seating at lunch counters and so on. There was very active segregation. It was segregation by law. Um, and prevention of their rights by, by law or by efforts. When, when they would go to register to vote, they would be tested on things that, that white Americans were not tested on. So there were groups active in changing this in the United States in the 50s and 60s. One of them was the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. And in the state of Alabama, there was a requirement that any organization active in the state had to register its membership with the state. Well, that was very dangerous in Alabama if you were trying to register black Americans to vote or to exercise other civil rights. And so the NAACP fought that, and the case went all the way to the Supreme Court, which said that our amendments that protect individual rights, the, the Bill of Rights in the U.S., are applicable to the state governments as well, under what we call the, the 14th Amendment. 
And so the state of Alabama couldn't require uh, that information. That is, freedom of association was protected. That was one set of things. We discovered in the 1970s as a result of the Watergate break-in that in fact the Army and other American military institutions, including the NSA, had been collecting information about Americans that many Americans felt they weren't legally entitled to. There was a committee in the Congress and the Senate called the Church Commission that investigated these at depth. And there were many changes put in about when the NSA, for example, could collect against Americans. And that became part of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. So we had, we built in those legal protections. But what we've discovered recently, um, and this has been the press in the United States, is that the FBI has decided that black activists are a real threat and they are collecting against black activists who are involved in peaceful demonstrations, not violent demonstrations, peaceful demonstrations. There were arrests during the inauguration uh, of Americans protesting Trump's inauguration that the American Civil Liberties Union is fighting because it appears that the arrests happened uh, for the, the people were not protesting violently. So now when you think about all that data collection, you can understand why um, at a time that maybe two years ago we didn't think that the government was collecting against us in the United States, there are reasons to say, well, there's information that I would want to protect, like who I'm communicating with, that our phones are in the same area, mm. and so on. Uh, so um, if I understand you correctly, there is a society cannot make progress if there is no privacy because the people who really want to change the state of the of the art that's, that's very well said and I'll go back to the church committee which had a very trenchant observation it said that when you when a government collects against its people what it does is it silences the people in the middle The people on the extremes are still willing to demonstrate, to, to speak, to write, but the people in the middle, who are the ones who seek compromise and help move the society forward, rather than having radical outbreaks, the people in the middle get silenced if there is collection against them. They're afraid of losing their homes, they're afraid of losing schooling capabilities, they're afraid of harm to their children, and they fall silent, and that's very unhealthy for a democracy. Yeah, but still, um As the Edward Snowden documents uh, show, this is this is happening. Or I mean, it happened in the U.S. It's probably still happening. What you work on policy and law enforcement is um, how how can you balance? Uh, sure. So let me actually answer the Snowden disclosures first, because I I think that there was a lot more heat than there should have been, and there were also places where the NSA was clearly doing things wrong. Two of them, to my mind, was that there was a secret interpretation of the law that allowed bulk collection of communications metadata in the United States. And when you have a secret interpretation of a law, then you have a secret law, which has no place in a democracy. The other thing that happened that came out in September of 2013 is that the NSA had and I want to put interfered in quotes, had interfered with a process for recommending a cryptographic algorithm. It was one that had encouraged the National Institute of Standards and Technology to issue as a recommendation for picking random numbers, dual ECDRBG. Um, and it seems that the NSA had a backdoor into this algorithm so that it could actually predict 
what the random numbers were, and those random numbers were used to generate keys. Now, the problem there is that it made List look like a bad player in the world of crypto algorithms. And that's very bad for security long term. Uh, it's very hard to come up with strong crypto algorithms. NIST had done an exemplary job from the late 1990s until this incident came to light. And while it looked like NIST was blindsided and didn't, probably didn't have all entirely good process in place, it did not look like NIST had done this understanding what was happening, but NIST was missing some process, which has since been fixed. But it created distrust in NIST and therefore created distrust in the whole business of picking algorithms. And how do you do that in a way where you can test them internationally by a broad community of cryptographers? So those are the things that, that I think were really problematic. There's some other smaller things. On the other hand, the fact that you had a US signals intelligence agency collecting broadly across the world, well, that's what signals intelligence agencies do. And so I think uh, there was a lot made of that. But some of the objections were more about protectionism than they were about anger about the actual collection of data. So some of the complaints that I heard in France and in Germany, it turned out that the French government and the German government were actually handing data over at the same time that they were complaining. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that was, um, yeah, that made a lot of people really mad that uh, the German government um, doesn't, um, or that they actually cooperate with Uh, international security agencies and do not protect our data. So one of the things I have to say, and I've, I've, I've many times complained about certain NSA activities, but one of the things I have to say is that the U.S. has a somewhat, well, a, a more transparent uh, view of what's happening about collection. That is, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, parts of what's called UCID-18 about signals intelligence collection abroad, Uh, various processes are more public. Certain details are not. Certain details of process and policy are not. I'm not even talking about methods of collection. But the U.S. has been more transparent. And I think that's a very good thing and a great thing for other countries to adopt as well. So how did that happen? I mean, were they forced to be more transparent? Um, so part of it was the church committee hearings of the, the 1970s. Uh, showed, for example, that the NSA had been collecting copies of all telegrams coming into the United States uh, from the 1940s on. There were other types of collections, as I said, by the Army and so on. When these things happened, NS we had the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, which had certain requirements. Uh, NSA embarked on a process of education of its own people and following the law. Now, they may go right up to the edge of the law, Uh, but following the law became very important. There was a change in the early 2000s after the September 11th attacks, um, and that's when the president, Bush, ordered metadata collection, bulk metadata collection, and there were various methods under which it was done, that is, various legal methods under which it was done. But as I said, that was a secret interpretation of the law, so I don't want to say that everything is perfect. It's not perfect. Mm -hmm. And then as technology changes, it's sometimes hard to know how to interpret the law. Mm, yeah, of course. I mean, if you say uh, it's the job of intelligence agencies to do that, right? So that means, yeah, they, even there is a law, they, pop, they maybe break it. I mean, I, I remember um, a conference 
were um, I think I, I cannot I actually I can I do remember the country it was in Germany but um, there was a representative from a cyber crime division uh, and he said please work for us because if you work for us you're allowed to break the law it's just our job to break the law it's not the job in the United States of law enforcement to break the law if you have to bring a case in court mm-hmm. and you've broken the law in most cases the case gets thrown out okay okay um, so it may be that what the person was saying, and it's hard to know because I wasn't there to ask, mm-hmm. it may be that the warrant allows you to circumvent a different law. So, for example, the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, which prevents against breaking into other people's systems, mm-hmm. except for law enforcement. And there is a, a specific mm-hmm. exemption for law enforcement, which is appropriate, but that doesn't mean law enforcement doesn't need a search warrant. Of course it does. Yeah, okay, okay. Uh, I certainly don't want to live in a country that doesn't have a rule of law. <laughs> Yeah, but um, when you know now, I know it's the, it's the work of an um, intelligence agency to collect to bulk collect all kinds of data. Um, how can I how can I protect myself that I'm not too um, open about what so, I'm doing? So. The question I always have when I'm thinking about my own security protections, and while I'm originally trained as a geek, I'm not a security geek, I'm trained as a theoretical computer scientist, um, so I can understand the mathematical algorithms better than I can think about system configuration. The, The thing that I always think about is, what's my threat model? Who is it that might attack me, and what resources might they bring to bear? So for a long time I didn't use Tor, for example. Then uh, I was teaching a class on uh, privacy, and I decided I wanted the students to use Tor. Tor anonymizes a web connection, and it does it through using public key cryptography and a series of servers that have the Tor software on it. So maybe the, um, Tor, if, if you use Tor, so you have to, to use a certain Tor browser, which is, I think... I think you, have to use, you have to download software onto your device, and use a Tor browser, and what it does is it encrypts three times with a public key, and then you connect to a Tor server. So the Tor server knows who you are, knows your IP address. That connects to another Tor server, which only knows that you've connected to a Tor server, but it doesn't know your IP address. It decrypts a second time. Then there's a third Tor server, which knows where you're exiting to. Okay. So, so what happens is now, If an adversary compromises the entire network, if an adversary can watch traffic over the entire network, they can say, oh, I'm watching this traffic traverse, and I know the IP address from where it came, and I know the IP address where it exited the Tor network, so I can see. But most most adversaries don't have quite that capability. And so the entry point knows where you came in, the exit point knows where you're going to, but nobody else has insight into anything. Uh, The Onion Router, that's what Tor stands for, was developed by the Naval Research Labs in the 90s and has had many improvements since then. I wanted my students to use the Tor browser to see how usable it was, to see what problems it had, and so on. I couldn't give them this assignment without actually using Tor myself. And so I began using Tor more often. Um, I feel that two-factor authentication is important, so I use two-factor authentication. So I have gone to using various of these tools in part because I teach privacy and security and it's important for me to experience the value and the problems. Uh, But in all of this, you need to think, what's your threat model? 
I won't, when I'm traveling, order anything online when I'm in a hotel unless I use my phone as a hotspot because I don't trust the hotels as an ISP. Um, that's because of a criminal threat. Um, can we trust the, um, the phone connection? Yeah, I think we can trust the phone connection. Again, you know, if I, what I have to worry about is am I a specific target or a general target? Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's true. Okay. Yeah, I mean, to, I, I usually don't use the, let's say, the um, Starbucks network or airport or something, but I, somehow I, I trust a, a hotel network. I don't know why, but you say... Well, it depends what I'm doing. I'm certainly not going to sit at the hotel or Starbucks at the airport or Starbucks and order items. Yeah, When I'm sitting in my hotel at night and thinking about my next trip, I might want to do a flight. Yeah, and then I say, okay, I'm going to do this. That's more a matter of, it's disruptive at a, at a Starbucks, and so I don't do those kinds mm -hmm. of things. Um, but it's, if, if I get to the point that I'm not trusting the phone network, I'm really thinking of myself as a specific target. And at that point, mm -hmm. um, I'm probably not doing anything online. <laughs> Except maybe reading the New York Times. <laughs> okay, good to know. I mean, I was a bit scared that I cannot trust the, fully trust the phone network. Well, again, I'm thinking about it in the context of U.S. law and U.S. requirements, mm. which is what I know thoroughly. Yeah. I mean, the main reason um, I talked to uh, Richard Clayton about yes. it. Yes. We gave a talk here at GoTo and I, um, about uh, cybercrime, and we had the conversation about... Um, a hacker who hacked into um, via the phone network into the Jeep Cherokee and took over the Jeep Cherokee. So I thought, you, I mean, yes. You so, but then you, again, that was a specific attack. Yeah. So would I do this kind of communication if I were in Russia? Absolutely not. Would I do this kind of communication if I were in Spain or Germany? Sure. I don't see the Spanish or German government mm -hmm. as seeing me as a threat or a target. Okay, okay. Okay, so two-factor authentication. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I rarely use it until I read your book. After like 20% of the book, I enabled it everywhere. So Good for you. Good for so, you. So, so why is... Why does that help us? Because um, if you're not using two-factor authentication, if you're using just your password to connect, then um, somebody takes your password, you don't know that happened. It could happen one day when you're at a cafe, it could happen one day when you're at home, and three months later, three weeks later, your whole email file is published online. Whereas if you have two-factor authentication, you're securing against a device being able to get into your, your account. That the point is that when somebody takes your phone, you know about it. Now, if it's a very sophisticated attack, if you know, if it's a government-enabled attack where they take your phone, they knock you down, you're completely unconscious, you're in the hospital, they take everything. That's a different kind of threat. I'm not talking about people facing those kinds of threats. They, of course, have to do much fancier things to protect themselves. Uh, but if you're the head of personnel of a hospital, if you're the uh, head of security at a company, Uh, then, then two-factor authentication. If you're, if you're in fact even um, at a low level, uh, two-factor authentication is very important because, for example, what happened in in the Ukraine in uh, 2015 is that 
six months before three power distribution companies were attacked in December 2015, six months before, hackers got into the business network and from the business network accessed the power distribution network. So maybe the business network needed two-factor authentication. Maybe, maybe not. I would tend to do it everywhere. Uh, but certainly the power distribution network of, of each of the three companies needed second-factor authentication. And um, what you have there is it was once the, once the hackers were in, they were able to figure out all sorts of things about how the three different power distribution companies worked and then able to shut all three of them down within a half hour of each other. Two-factor authentication would have prevented that from happening. Mm, okay. So it's, it's a good advice for all kinds of companies to protect mails, all kinds of logins to sensitive company data with a two-factor And if you're sure that the company does not have, if you're convinced that the sensitive parts of the company are kept really separate from the non-sensitive parts of the company, then maybe you can get away with passwords. Mm. Um, but, but if there are connections, and there are always connections, nobody maps out everything yeah, completely. If there are connections to the sensitive parts of the company, then you want two-factor authentication. Mm. Okay. Good. Um, let's switch a little bit to topics. Maybe it's not a big switch, but I was just wondering about uh, wiretapping and backdoors. So, what is wiretapping? Wiretapping is simply the ability to listen into an electronic communication. Um, so, of course, if you put a bug into a phone receiver, for those of us who remember what phone receivers look like, that is wiretapping, but it's accomplished through an electronic bug because it's a physical bug placed in. Um, wiretapping can happen at the device. You can place a wiretap through software on a, on a smartphone. You can wiretap through the phone switch. You can wiretap in many different places. Backdoor is the idea that um, if somebody tries to encrypt a communication end-to-end -end, so that you and I talking on the phone, the, the conversation is decrypted on my phone, it's decrypted on your phone, but anybody else listening in hears an encrypted communication, a backdoor is a way of being able to get into that communication even though it's encrypted for anybody else. About uh, 20, 25 years ago in the United States and in other parts of the world, there was a big fight about the whole idea of backdooring encryption systems. Um, one of the things that... Uh, that Maybe I, I just want to go, before we talk about backdoors, I have one question on wiretapping. Let's assume we, uh, I wiretap um, a connection, you know, somewhere between my home and a major switch. What can if if I use encrypted communication? Um, what what can the attacker if you're if you're end to end encrypted, and the wiretap is not on your device, if you have an encryption system where you and I have exchanged the key, mm -hmm. and it's a strong encryption system, then if the wiretap is not at one of the endpoints, there's nothing they can do. All they get is is noise. Okay. Um, But it had been previously the case before all of us carried computers with us, we call them smartphones, uh, it had been previously the case that there were many places along the path to put a wiretap in. Uh, the most common place was uh, at what was called the phone central station. That is, if you have a wireline phone, there's a wire that goes from your house to an office within a couple of miles, a few kilometers, 
and the, the phone lines come in in order, uh, 5129, 5130, 5131, and the wiretap was put right there, uh, where the communication would be in clear text and then move on. Uh, you can do a sim similar thing at a cell tower, because while phone communications are encrypted between you and the cell tower... Okay. Okay. Um, so back about 25 years ago, there was a big fight in the United States and in other places about the whole idea of encrypted communications and law enforcement wanted a backdoor. Uh, one of the ways this was prevented uh, from happening is that in 2000, for a number of reasons, the United States government changed its control on exports of encryption. It had been the case that if you wanted, if the US, if US companies wanted to sell communication or computer devices abroad, with encryption in it, they needed an export license. And this was slow and very hard to get, and if the device had strong encryption, you might be told, well, we're still working on the export license. Well, we're still working on the export license. Well, we're... And by the third time you heard that, if you're at Silicon Valley, you say, forget it. And you put in weak encryption, and you sell the device. Now, that was for selling it abroad, but if you're a company in the United States and you're trying to sell things abroad, you don't want to say, we're selling you weak encryption, we have strong encryption for communication, for devices we sell in the United States, so you have weak encryption everywhere. In, the, in 2000, both Europe and, and the United States changed their encryption policy. In part, for the US, it had to do with the military uh, buying commercial off-the-shelf equipment. Uh, if you think about the kinds of military coalitions we've had in the last 15, 20 years, or even by now, starting in, in 1991, um, 1989, uh, 1980, well, uh, 1991, I think, um, we've had a lot of ad hoc military coalitions. So you have NATO, this is not an ad hoc military coalition, the countries trust each other, they've been in a coalition for a long time, they have secure communication systems they've developed. But now you put together a, a coalition uh, to fight the war after uh, Iraq invaded, uh, blanking, Iraq invaded, uh, sorry? Kuwait. Kuwait, right. Kuwait. When, when Iraq invaded Kuwait, you put, uh, the U.S. put together an ad hoc military coalition. And these are partners that maybe the U.S. doesn't want to share its communications, uh, its uh, communications uh, techniques, secure communications techniques, it's countries that maybe won't be its friends in three years, and so being able to buy commercial off-the-shelf equipment is, is, is very useful, commercial, commercial off-the-shelf equipment that has strong encryption. This was one of many reasons, the growth of the internet and e-commerce was another. And so the U.S. substantially loosened its export controls, and we expected to see lots of, of, of devices with strong encryption. It took another eight to ten years before that happened in commercial devices. And during this time, the FBI was unhappy, but it became quite unhappy beginning in the late 2000s, early 2010s, and began talking about going dark. And it asked, uh, it knew that backdoors was no longer an approved term. It was something that people thought was, was really yucky. And so it said, we want front doors. And then it said, we want exceptional access. Only at, we get access only when we have a court order, only when there's a legal authorization to come in. And otherwise, the encryption is really strong. And then they changed the term to responsible encryption. But all of it is the same thing. It's a way of getting in even when the device is encrypted. So just a nicer term for backdoor. 
Well, I would say it's actually um, it's actually what we call 1984 speak. It's double speak because what they're calling responsible encryption, I would call irresponsible security. <laughs> Why is it? Uh, why is a backdoor problematic? I mean, so there are many you different. Think, you could think, well, you know, if there is a backdoor, and only I don't know the FBI or whoever has the you know the, the key to open the backdoor. Yeah, you know, and if what we could go wrong. Right, but I am talking on an IEEE broadcast where people are actually scientists and engineers. So point one: when you build complexity in, things break down. Point two. Um, is and some of this is due to a paper I did with a dozen other colleagues, 15 other colleagues called Keys Under Doormats. Point two is that it breaks all types of security protections we've come up with. One is called forward secrecy, which is the idea that each communication carries with it its own key. And that means if an adversary has been scooping up communications over a long time, then if it wants to break the communications, it has the job of breaking it for each key as opposed to breaking it once. And that's very important, a very important security protection. Another security protection it breaks is authenticated encryption. One of the things we've learned over time is it's not the mathematics that breaks in encryption, and it's not the protocols that usually break in encryption. Most often it's the implementations, far and away. Sometimes it's the protocols, and very occasionally it's the mathematics, but it's really implementation, protocol, mathematics in that order. Uh, with orders of magnitude difference between them. So if you think about uh, authenticated encryption, when we talk electronically, as opposed to you and I facing each other in person, when we talk electronically, there's this whole business of authenticating. When you do it over the telephone, often you can recognize the person's voice, although as we get better on all sorts of electronic imitations, that may disappear as well. But you authenticate the person's voice. But what happens when you get an email? Well, you'd like a way to authenticate that it really is coming from you as opposed to somebody else. When, uh, as, as we heard earlier today in Richard Clayton's talk, you want to know that the piece of mail coming from the company that you're buying coal from, you want, that tells you to switch banks, you want to know that it's really coming from the company you're buying the coal from and not from some other company. So what we did is we put together the idea of authentication and encryption in one step. We called it authenticated encryption and you use the same key for both. Well, if you take the idea of backdoors or uh, exceptional access or responsible encryption, you have to separate the authentication step from the encryption step because law enforcement will allow authentication, but it doesn't want the confidentiality in the same way. Once you create that separation, you've gotten back to, we have more complexity, more likelihood for error. There's the whole issue of who's- I think yeah, that's an important, uh, um sentence, I think, I want to repeat, more complexity, more error. So we Every software engineer knows this. <laughs> Every software engineer knows it. The system, the less likely it breaks or can be hacked. Or, yeah. So maybe what you're telling me is we should take all of the policy folks at the FBI who are arguing for this and put them through a course in software engineering and the problem <laughs> would go away. I've never thought about that solution, but maybe that's it. Um, there's also the issue of who would hold the keys. Who would hold the keys? Um, you know, I take my phone, I travel from, from the U.S. to Germany for a conference. Uh, last week I went to Canada. Does my phone stop working when I go to Germany because only U.S. law enforcement has access to the keys? Or we're going to have a really fast multi, uh, 
multilateral legal authorization, authorization treaty in which as soon as German police decide they need to get into my phone, they get an immediate response from the US, that's not going to happen as a matter of policy. Does that mean that I need a different system for traveling in Germany and a different system for traveling in the UK, let alone in other parts of the world? That complexity is also uh, unreasonable. Okay, that's, and that's, is that the reason why, um, why there are no backdoors implemented? Or well, there are plenty of backdoors implemented. When you, when you work at a financial firm in the United States, there's a requirement that uh, your conversations are taped. And any time you call a financial firm, a stockbroker and so on, it says this conversation is being recorded. Um, But is the, is the communication itself encrypted? Uh, well, it's it recorded at the broker's end. So okay. you're speaking to the broker, the broker understands you in English, mm. is speaking to you back in English, mm. and that English conversation at the broker's end, at the end point, is, is, is recorded. Uh, communications to, so financial institutions in one place where there's a requirement. Uh, various companies where you work will say, if you're working for a defense company, it will say that your communications are, are open to the company and they will have uh, software on the device and so on to enable that. And that's part of their security model. Um, but that's different from everybody's devices being recorded yeah, exactly, in that way. Exactly. So if, you know, if, I have a, if I have a cell phone, I don't want responsible encryption that's right responsible encryption irresponsible security yeah, yes irresponsible security and actually there was a there was a case was it the san bernardino um yes um, what is it attack or right there were two attackers the san bernardino health department um they killed i believe 14 people and injured many more uh they fled they were found by police a few hours later Uh, they had destroyed their computers and their phones, but they'd left behind one locked iPhone. Um, and there was an 18-minute gap where the police didn't know, based on cell phone data and so on, uh, where the attackers had been, and they wanted to know if they'd communicated with anybody, they wanted the phone open. Now, the communicated with anybody seems a bit weird, because if they communicated with anybody, it would have been picked up by the towers. Um, but... Putting that aside, they asked Apple to undo the security protections on the phone. So this is somewhat different from end-to-end -end encryption. It's about locked devices. They asked Apple to build software that would undo the protections, which included you have 10 tries to type a pin into the phone, and if after the 10 tries um, you can't open the phone, the phone destroys all the data. Uh, it, there were the other protection that Apple put in is that each time you tried with an incorrect pin, it would slow it down till the next time you could try. Um, and FBI said, look, we can't get into the phone. Only Apple was able to get into the phone by undoing the security protections, doing an update specific to the phone. And Apple refused. Uh, Apple, uh, they went to court. Apple. So they, they refused um, because they thought it will harm their business model? So I'm going to be very careful here because I have, you know, my interpretation of why Apple refused is I'm not speaking for Apple in any way. Yeah. Uh, what Apple said in court 
and also in the congressional hearing in which I participated, they said there is a, you don't, the, the government doesn't have a legal right to request this. Uh, the government was relying on a law from the 1700s about companies providing assistance in case of, uh, in these types of cases. Apple said what the FBI was requesting went well above and beyond the type of assistance envisioned. Apple also said, and this is where I'm, uh, I'm not a lawyer, I'm not going to comment on the first part, but the second part, which is about security, I very much agree and support Apple. Uh, in fact, they used some of my arguments in their briefs um, to the court. Uh, they said it, it creates a security problem. The FBI originally had been saying they had a single phone that they wanted updated in this way. Um, once they went to Congress, they said, well, we actually have another 11 or dozen. And then the state of New York said that they had several hundred. Um, and by now, the law enforcement has several thousand. I think it's up to about 7,000. Well, and when you think about the process of doing those kind of updates, uh, the, up the phones have to go to Apple because Apple is not going to mail the software somewhere else. They, right? They have to be individualized for the phone, uh, not in terms of new software, but they have to be specific to a phone so that they don't get used and sent somewhere else. So now you have a lawyer and an engineer looking at each phone as they come in. The, the lawyer looks at the legal contract, the engineer makes sure it's the right phone that it hasn't been tampered with in any way, and they apply this update. The problem is you've now introduced, when you have several thousand over a year and a half's time of collection, you've now introduced many more people to the process of doing an update. And we all know in security, the more people you have in such a situation, the less likely that you can keep the security of the update system safe. Uh, and Again, something like the more complex it gets? Um, yes, but here you're, here you're introducing people, which is a completely new variable that's complicated. Also, I think from a software perspective, if you, I mean, probably you, I mean, you have to program it. Well, you're already doing, they already do the updates individualized to a okay, phone. Okay, um, and that's partially because they want to be sure that when they are getting a request for an update, that they are updating the phone correctly and not rolling back and giving a previous update. Yeah, so, so it's also important that you don't automate it in a sense. That's right. Because, um, because you want to make sure that you're doing it to the right phone when you're doing this insecurity update. It's not a security update, it's an insecurity <laughs> update. And so that's why you have the people involved, but the people create the risk. Mm -hmm. um, and now you think about the risk that gets created in the update process. When I think about the best things that we've done for security over the last uh, decade or so, to me the most important one is automatic updates. The best uh, one? Yes, yeah, yeah. Uh, automatic updates. Well, if Which you is actually totally, I think it's totally interesting that, you know, I also think automatic updates are totally cool, right? But security departments of companies I work for as a consultant, they say we don't want to have automated updates. Because it breaks systems. Uh, on the other hand, their job should be to figure out how to do the update, how to deal with the update quickly. And maybe we need better communication between the providers of systems like Apple and Windows and so on, better, better earlier communication that says, this is what this update is going to do. We're not quite ready to roll it out, but here are the things you should be aware of so that you can update your systems. Mm -hmm. um, but yes, automatic updates, especially for consumers, yeah. 
yeah. um, are critically important. And if you get to the point where the automatic updates are not trusted, because maybe somebody's corrupted the Apple update system one time, or maybe people are worried that they're going to be snooped on, then, then we're moving very badly backwards in security at a time when we can not afford to do so. Um, talking about end-to-end -end encryption, and end-to-end encryption, I, I was really surprised when I read in your book that you made that you you know a positive example of end-to-end -end encryption is WhatsApp, and in Germany, like WhatsApp, Facebook, it's seen very critical, and you know I know people who don't use WhatsApp because they say I don't trust it and I don't want to give my data to Facebook. So why do you, why do you okay. make a positive case yes. out of sure. WhatsApp? Sure, sure. So to my regret, I didn't use WhatsApp before Facebook bought it. Because now, in order to use WhatsApp, I have to register at Facebook. And I don't have a Facebook account. But, ah, but you know, I, I use WhatsApp for a long time. Yes. I didn't register. I don't use Facebook. For That's right. But if you had WhatsApp before it was bought by Facebook, yeah, you didn't have to register with okay. Facebook when you did so. So, um, WhatsApp and Signal differ in one way. They use the same algorithm. For Signal is a similar software like WhatsApp. Yes. They use the same algorithm with one distinct difference. In, to, to communicate securely, you have to, you have to do a one-time out-of-band communication in which the two users, Alice and Bob, exchange a piece of information mm -hmm. to assure themselves there's no man in the middle. If Bob goes and gets a new SIM card, if Bob gets a new phone, they have to do that one-time exchange of information again. Exactly. Um, Signal requires, when Alice sends a message to Bob and Bob has updated in some way, Signal requires that, that they do this one-time exchange before the message is, is received. WhatsApp doesn't. So that's less secure. That's the one difference. But uh, WhatsApp has a billion users. <laughs> mm -hmm. Signal doesn't. WhatsApp was, was working for convenience and for almost all their users that's the right choice. Um, they're providing end-to-end -end encryption in, an, in a convenient way which really matters mm -hmm. to their users. Signal is providing end-to-end -end encryption for users who care more about security than they care about convenience. So Signal made a different choice. Mm -hmm. So we have now three different things you're asking about. There's the difference between Signal and WhatsApp, and there's the difference between WhatsApp and Facebook. So um, one can communicate via WhatsApp and not share other information with Facebook. And then your communication is end-to-end -end encrypted. And the only thing you've done if you get a WhatsApp account now is that you've shared a little bit of information with Facebook, and perhaps they know how much you use the WhatsApp application, but aside from that, they don't have other data. Oh, so basically the content, you have, there are no backdoors? It That's right. That's right. It's the same algorithm as Signal. It's just that they made a choice about convenience, which for their user body is probably the appropriate choice. Mm, okay. But still, Facebook and, you know, attackers of all sorts, yeah, governments, they, um, they know the, the metadata of the conversation or of conversations. So maybe what are metadata? Sure. So communications metadata, back if you go back to phones, the phones that sat on, on your grandmother's hallway table, those big black phones with a, a real physical bell inside, 
um, they would say that the phone call occurred between this number and that number at this time and lasted these many minutes. Um, and phones didn't move back until, you know, sometime in the 90s. That was very useful for trying to establish, for example, that two criminals had talked to each other just before they went out and committed a robbery, or they talked to each other, and then you notice that one of them charged nitric acid that they bought for a bomb, and then they talked to each other, and, and the other one went bought, out and bought fuses for the bomb, and so on. Um, that was very useful. As people began using cell phones and smartphones, the metadata became much richer because now you knew not that this phone line called that phone line, but you knew that this individual called that individual. Few people share cell phones. I mean, you might share it with your wife, I might share mine with my husband when, I'm, when we're out hiking and I didn't bring my phone, but typically a cell phone is tied to an individual. They know where you are and so on. So it's very rich evidentiarily, uh, for evidential purposes. Um, so that's a situation where the data that, that previously the two people on the phone knew they had talked to each other, but the phone company only knew who it was, which phone number talked to which phone number. Now we're in a completely different situation. I talk to you on the phone and I know I'm talking to you. The phone company knows I'm talking to you. But the phone company knows where I am and where you are. Whereas I might tell you I'm in New York when actually I'm in Berlin and I don't want to tell you because I don't have time to see you and I'm embarrassed and all of that. So the phone company knows more about certain things than you and I do. And it's real transfer of, of richness of information. But that, that evidentiary value of being able to track a, a person is really important for law enforcement, it's really important for national security, and very heavily used by both. So, you, you say it's, it's important, um, is there any risk to, let's say, society or individuals? Of if, course. If they don't, you know, if they're not a, sus a suspect, because, I mean, I understand if there is a, you know, there is a crime, I really like the idea that the police has lots of possibilities to access the data to narrow down. Um, sure. Um, so what you want to do, this is a case where you really want to control the use of the data. Uh, let me give you an example with a different kind of, of, of data, and then we can go back to phones for a second. Mm -hmm. uh, we all use, whether it's metro cards to be on the subway or um, easy pass or the version in, in Europe to go and, and use toll roads where we no longer pay the toll but it's just automatically deducted from whatever account we set up by, by something that reads something from your car. Uh, we, we all find that very convenient. It saves money, it's convenient, we'll use less gas because we don't have to slow down as we go through. But if a divorce lawyer proves that one part of the couple was always leaving work at four, stopping somewhere along the way at a particular time, you know, but simply by tracking the, the husband's route, let us say, and shows that in fact there was an affair going on that changes what the wife might collect under alimony or, or whatever, or whether the, the wife may have different visiting out, you know, may, may, have, may get to keep the children more of the time, all of those kinds of issues. So you want protection of that data. You want that data to only be stored for a certain amount of time. Mm -hmm. You know, we never had that data before. Is there a reason that that data should be kept more than a month, more than three months, and so on? Under what circumstances should it be released? Now let's go back to communications. 
and I want to go to encrypted voice over IP. Uh, there's some nice work that Charles Wright, Fabian and Rose, and but, but do get lawyers easily access to that? Because it, I, I, what you know, one case I think somebody came up at the Chaos Computer Congress was like you know, people say um, metadata don't you know they do not matter you know only you know in the case where uh, law enforcement asks to get them, but maybe they get in the wrong hands. Maybe you know. An insurance, which is seen as the wrong hands, and insurance knows or gets gets the data that you called uh, your your doctor or the the, the AIDS. I think so. you made an AIDS yes. test, and you, you you just called that place, and then you call your wife, and right. then you call I don't know the um, some hotline. Yes, yes, something, and they may think. Okay, we quit his contract for some made-up reason. Right, so that's again a case yeah. where you really want to control use. Who gets to use that data? What are the controls on what an insurance company could do? And if you go back to the 1970s in the United States, in the 1960s, the banks began, banks and other financial institutions began sharing data about people who were taking loans out. And all of a sudden, you had this transfer of power from the individuals who had a pretty good sense about whether or not they could pay the loan, maybe not a perfect sense, mm -hmm. but a reasonable sense, to all of a sudden the banks knew a lot more about you than you knew about yourself. Mm -hmm. And so we got the Fair Credit Reporting Act, which said, well, all right, you can have these institutions that collect information about your financial situation, how many credit cards accounts you have, how high their limits are, how, how quickly you pay, whether you're paying interest on it, and so on. You can have these data collection, but that data cannot be shared with a bank without your permission. That's the Fair Credit Reporting Act. And that's an example of the kind of thing where you put controls on use. So what you're talking about here is controls on use. And maybe a bank requires me or asks me to hand out the data. That's right. But that's probably not, um, I can sue them for that. Well, again, it depends on your country's laws. I mean, if the if your country's laws say the bank can't be allowed to ask that, or the health insurance company cannot discriminate against you on the basis of a genome test you had. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, but now if you go back to communications metadata, um, if you talk about IP communications, voice over IP, there's some nice work by Fabian Monroe, Charles Wright, and a few others that says if you looked at encrypted voice over IP, because we have a lot of redundancy in speech, um, it's just the way human beings are built, we have a lot of redundancy in speech. When you go to voice over IP, there's compression in the speech. And if you look at the packet length in voice over IP, that's actually very revelatory. It can reveal whether it's a man or a woman speaking. It can reveal uh, what language they're speaking. And in some cases, it can reveal the actual words that they're saying, simply by the packet length. Now, who would have thought that packet length is revelatory of content? So we all of a sudden, in this world that's much richer with metadata, have a real mess about how do we handle that data? Do we count it? Should we count location? the way we counted location back when phones didn't move as part of communications metadata that, mm -hmm. that law enforcement, at least in the United States, can get 
if it's relevant to an ongoing investigation or because it really reveals a lot about somebody. You notice that every day they come home from five from the factory and one day they leave the factory at three, they go to a bar, they sit there till 9 p.m., they get home and they don't go to the factory again. You know they've been fired. Yeah, so, so now do we treat location information as a different kind of information because it's so much richer? Mm-hmm. Do we treat other kind? We, we have to figure that out as societies and we haven't gotten to that yet. Okay, so how, how does a society figure that out? So are there researchers who raise their hand and activists? Absolutely, absolutely. Okay. So if you go to, for example, there's a Privacy Legal Scholars Conference in the U.S., and I believe there's now one uh, that happens in Holland uh, that was an outgrowth of the one in the United States. Uh, the scholars publish you know, all these theoretical papers about what could happen if and what could happen there. And you can certainly track certain of the privacy cases that happen in the U.S., and we, we do law in two ways in the U.S. Congress and state legislators, leg- state legislatures pass laws, but you also have reaction to the laws or reaction to cases happening in the courts, where the courts will say, this is a violation of due process, this is a violation of rights, and the laws to loose or or the police did not act within the law and you get changes based on that. So sometimes the academic papers influence law, more often they influence, I don't know if more often, sometimes they influence court cases and and that then changes how the laws interpreted or, or new laws are passed. Okay, good. Um, switching again a little bit to talk about that, it's not actually a switch, but um, so these things, you know, we, we can we can secure ourselves. Um, we uh, there are laws which protect us, but are there attacks we we cannot prevent? So of course, of course. Like, I think of like large scale, like Stuxnet or something. Like that. Okay, or so like there so there are many kinds. Well, Stuxnet was not large scale. It was very very targeted. Yeah. Okay. okay. Um, so. Um, but nobody can prevent it if. if We could stop using software and hardware and then you could prevent those kinds of attacks. Short of that, (laughs) I don't think you can. Um, You know, the analogy that people in security like to use is that you put locks on doors to prevent the common criminal, the street criminal, from breaking into your house. Um, And as long as your lock is at least as good as everybody else on the street or maybe a little bit better, you're in good shape. If you have a Picasso on the walls then uh, you don't have big plate glass windows for everybody to see the Picasso and break the window and go in and get the... So um, if you practice reasonable security, uh, you don't go to a Wi-Fi network at a cafe or at the hotel lounge or the hotel lobby or the, uh, the airport lounge and you know, do important financial transactions if you actually look where the mail came from, if you don't open attachments just at random, um, then you are reasonably safe. Um, We have become as a society, however, increasingly we've built our society upon fragile networks, fragile systems. Five years ago, I would have said, well, we have to worry about a concerted attack against critical infrastructure. Uh, But on the other hand, an attack against critical infrastructure, like the attack against Ukraine power distribution companies, 
that's an attack that it might take a certain amount of time to establish attribution, but you can establish that attribution with a pretty high probability of knowing who did it, uh, and then you can attack them. You know, in the case of the power distribution companies, the Ukrainian companies, um, it has all the hallmarks of a nation state. There was a lot of practicing and effort put into the attack to bring down three companies within a half hour of each other. And you can hold them accountable in certain ways. We've seen in the last couple of years a real shift to going after the soft underbelly of civil society. In the case of North Korea, it was pretty weird to go after Sony Picture Entertainment as a way of stopping them from showing a film that, uh, that the North Korean government objected to. You, you mean the Sony production? Of the interview. Yeah, exactly. So then, what, what was the movie? I didn't. I actually didn't see the movie. So. It was. It got terrible reviews. <laughs> it was. was it, it mocked this uh, the uh, Kim Jong Un, yeah. the the current leader of okay. of North Korea, yeah. um, and the North Koreans did not want the movie to be shown, and they threatened. Sony Picture Entertainment, which for a while thought it wouldn't so show the film. They, they threatened, or they actually did something. Well, they did several things. First of all, they sent threatening mail, which nobody paid attention to. Mm. Then they published emails. They published human uh, uh, resources information about individuals. They um, uh, showed some of the films that Sony Picture Entertainment had had available on their internal networks. Uh, so they attacked, they destroyed various machines electronically. So they did a number of bad things. And then they said, if you show the film in movie theaters, despite all this, we will, uh, we will bomb the theaters. Uh, now, they didn't say it as the North Korean government. They said it as, as a group, but it was a clear who was behind this. Um, at this point, the U.S. government and others pointed out that it's one thing to attack electronically on wires going under the Pacific or other ways. It's another thing to build, move actual bombs into movie theaters, and that was not a serious attack, not a serious threat. Uh, but that was one example of going after civil society, and um, I think President Obama, it's hard to know exactly the reasons that he he viewed it as a national security threat, but I think the idea that you can shut down speech in another nation by doing an electronic attack of this sort is a very disturbing idea. But the much more disturbing attacks on civil society are the ones that we saw um, in France against the Macron campaign in the United States in the, our presidential election. Um, in Germany, there was the incident of the uh, German-Russian teenager who ran away, and then there was all sorts of, and I don't even want to give it the name, false so news. The, the, the Russian teenager, it was a, a made-up story. That's right. Well, she ran away, but the rest of the story was a completely made-up story that, that she had been raped by immigrants and so on. Uh, no, she did actually run away. That, that part, I believe, was real, but the rest of it was not real. Uh, but I don't even want to call it fake news. I want to call it complete disinformation. It has nothing to do with news. Um, those types of attacks on civil society. So just to the Macron and the Macron attack is that somebody um, wanted to influence the election in France to possibly to get uh, the right-wing party on power to destabilize the French government. The French government and therefore oh, the EU. And then the EU. Yes, and, and there's and now the same thing. Um, in Germany, people were also uh, worried about this. That, that 
Russian attacks um, would do the same yeah. thing. And in fact, in, in the last couple of days, uh, the British government has said um, that there was a concerted effort in the last couple of days before the Brexit election um, two years ago um, to uh, influence people who are likely to vote against staying in the European Union to, to vote against it. Mm -hmm. And that those, those ads uh, were Russian influence. Mm -hmm. um, so we're seeing all... I mean, the same is going on in the US, right? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Well, uh, we don't vote in Brexit, but yes, yeah. the same type of effort. Um, these attacks on civil society are very scary. And uh, the question is how you react to it, um, what you do. They're both computer security protections you want to do uh, of the sort that you increase the security of, a, of accounts, you keep certain data offline, you make certain communications ephemeral. There's no reason to keep communications. We have a tendency as, as a communicating species to imagine that when I speak to you, what I say, you know, it may influence you, but the words drift away because they were just said between us. But when we put them in email, they don't drift away. Exactly. And we don't have a history of saying, huh, that thing I said to you that was nasty about this third person and that I just said to you, I figured you heard it and that was it. Now you can prove that I said it or somebody else can prove that I said it. We don't have those mechanisms unless we use ephemeral communications, end-to-end -end encryption and so on. So there are the security protections we might install there's resiliency of how different civil society groups can recover once they're attacked. Not the technical recovery, which is one thing we do know how to do, but the social recovery of how you establish, yes, these were communications we had, or but there were some false communications put in deliberately so that you can't tell which is which, we knew which were which, or whatever it is you do. And Macron's campaign claimed to have done that, that they seeded their campaign information with false documents so that if there was such a theft, they could react against it. There's establishing resiliency. And then there's the whole issue of how do you deal with disinformation campaigns within electronic social media that uh, make accountability very difficult to establish. Is it even possible to uh, do something against fake news in... Oh, sure, it's possible. I mean, you could do lots of thing about, things about news feeds that would uh, not be what Facebook wanted to do uh, and would involve much more people involvement. Whether you could do it legally in the United States under the First Amendment depends on how you view social media. There's regulation of speech in the United States on radio broadcasts and television broadcasts in the sense that political ads have to be labeled political ads. Mm -hmm. um, there hasn't been similar regulation on social media. That one is easy to do. The more complicated one is what you do about communications that are political in nature but are not political ads. And how do you label something as, as political speech when it's not? And that gets into First Amendment issues. But we haven't even thought about Facebook or Google or other social media as being falling within that regulatory framework. And it may be that that's, we need to think about it at least for pieces of what they offer. Okay. 
since you work for Google and um, Sun Microsystems, uh, what, what can we as software developers learn in terms of security and privacy from Google, Sun and sure. those so, companies? So I'm really impressed by both Sun and Google in terms of security. Uh, I still remember the weekend I was at working for Sun where somebody had, we became aware of a vulnerability and I watched this conversation over our security interest mailing list as it was getting patched. It still took a day or two to roll out and process after the weekend was over, but I was watching people work all weekend. And we didn't have anything like patch every fourth Thursday of the month or whatever it might be. We patched when we became there was a, a, aware that there was a vulnerability. Um, and uh, I, w I was and remain impressed, really impressed with Sun's security ethos. Uh, Google in 2010 got attacked by the Chinese uh, who took some software and did other things. I'm reporting this not as a Google employee, but as something I read in the press. And Google got very, very serious about security. It had been serious before, but it got much more serious. And I find their security protections, whether it's Chrome, which is probably the most secure browser, uh, or the fact that it does red teaming inside the company. Why is Chrome probably the most secure browser? What are they doing to make it secure? Uh, so now we're getting past my expertise level, okay. aside from you know sandboxing in the right ways, cross-site protecting against cross-site scripting and so on. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, there, there are other parts to the fact that you're using Chrome because, of course, the data is shared with Google, and that's a different issue. But on the security side, Chrome... Chrome appears to be the best. Um, they also offer money to people to... Absolutely. Uh, uh, the other part is that Google does a lot of red teaming. Um, red teaming? Red teaming using Google employees to attempt to attack Google systems, uh, to find holes in them and, and then improve the protections. Um, Google has, um, has Google Authenticator, which is a way of doing two-factor authentication. It's a piece of software you download on your device. I have two different pieces of software on my phone for two-factor authentication. Google Authenticator, which I use for a couple of sites, and Duo, which is from a company in Michigan that I use for other sites. On privacy, the issues are somewhat less clear. Um, I would say that, um, first of all, Sun was never in the business of of collecting consumer inv uh, information that wasn't in, in that business space at all. Uh, Scott McNeely famously said, you don't have any privacy, get over it. But in fact, both Scott McNeely, Scott McNeely the oh, CEO thought, of Sun. I, I thought it was Mark Zuckerberg. No, 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 it was, uh, you don't have, it was Scott McNeely. But uh, both his view of privacy and the company's view of privacy was in fact a great deal more nuanced. Um, but it was in a different business than, than Google is. Uh, Google views uh, good privacy as good security, and they certainly have a good security story. They do use some uh, forms of privacy-enhancing technologies to pr protect user data. That includes using multi-party computation to enable Google to learn certain information in the aggregate, certain very private information about users in the aggregate, while not learning information about individuals. In the aggregate? Uh, learning about uh, who is responding to certain types of ads and what percentage of people are responding to certain types of ads, okay. but a group of them 
not, not about each, each individual. Uh, so aggregate means learning about a group without learning about individuals. Um, using other forms of differential privacy to learn things about how users are responding to URLs and, and to search items. Um, so I think that that's, that's a great step in the right direction. Uh, but most of Google's response on privacy is really about security rather than privacy per okay. se. Um, in terms of um, learning not about individual users, um, to me that sounds a little bit like uh, uh, anonymization. So, is, that, uh, is that true? Um, well, Google doesn't do anonymization in the sense that Google is trying to provide you with personalized service, and it's hard to anonymize if you're trying to provide personalized service. Um, so I don't think Google is going in the direction of anonymization, although you certainly can use Google services without being assigned end user. But can a Google employee, not sure if I'm allowed to, if you're allowed to answer the question, but is, is it possible for a Google employee to, to see individual? In fact, I'm really allowed to answer that question. Absolutely not. <laughs> the fastest way to get fired at Google is to try and snoop on an individual Google user. And you are out the door before you finish typing, essentially. Uh, so while I'm not allowed to comment on things I learned at Google, um, that particular thing I'm sure I'm allowed to comment okay. on. Uh, that is a complete violation of, of Google policy. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, but, but what I was going to say about anonymization is if you're trying to provide individualized service, and that's what Google is trying to provide, then you're not going to go down the path of anonymization. That's different from allowing a Google employee to snoop on what a user is doing. That's absolutely not permitted at all, period, the end. Yeah, okay, okay. Yeah, I mean, what, why I'm asking is I, I work with insurances, health insurance, for example. They, these data are really um, sensitive, of course. I, as a software developer, needs, or, or you know, banking is the same. Um, but let, let's take healthcare. Um, I need test data to work on, which can be easily shared. You know, I it should be easy not to make mis make mistakes, and for that reason, they need to be anonymized. But somehow, that seems to be a very hard uh, problem. So, an important thing to do is to frame the problem right at the beginning. Um, what kind of data am I going to be allowed to test on? What kind of data do you need to have? Uh, this is what I need. Can we anonymize it in this way? Um, would that suffice for your program? No, because I have these constraints. So well before the, the program is architected, well before you're in final coding stages, well before you're ready to deliver to the, to the company, you have the conversations about, here's what I want to be able to test on. Well, we want to give you this kind of data. Will it work? This is sufficiently anonymized in these ways. And, and it's just the same way we think about security, or we should think about security from the beginning. You should think about privacy from the beginning, including in terms of what kind of test data will I be able to, to have. Mm. Yeah, I mean, if you, if you do software art, or if you, if, you, if you create a software architecture, of course there are those security and privacy are things you have to think like the same with reliability, so you cannot build them in afterwards. You That's right. You think about it up front. But, but your question really makes me think about how important it is to be teaching software engineers within a software engineering course the kinds of questions they should be asking 
about the test data that they will be receiving and that they need to ask it early so that the that there's a good dialogue and they get to the point where they're testing against reasonable data, but that's also privacy protective mm -hmm. of users. And usually we don't think about test data in the beginning. So but if you're thinking about privacy, you gotta. <laughs> okay, thanks. Okay, thanks very much. <laughs>